This podcast is brought to you by SIDGRAPH Asia 2014, running from the 3rd of December to December 6th this year in Shenzhen in China. FX Guide is proud to be associated with SIDGRAPH Asia and is the official podcast of the show. Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles and Sydney, you're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. This is the podcast where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work, dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. Check out all of our other podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. In this edition of the FX podcast, we're going to explore digital humans. There have been several very successful attempts at creating digital humans, and some have not gone so well. There's probably no harder task than fooling the viewer into believing a digital character is real. Our Mike Seymour is going to speak with Chris Nichols about this. Chris recently announced that he's part of the Digital Human League, a group that, among others, includes ICT's Paul DeBevick, Digital Domain's Steve Prieg, and Angela Tinwell, who wrote a book on the Uncanny Valley. The goal of the group is to open source information for the improvement of the craft of creating digital humans. Let's cross now to Mike Seymour with Chris Nichols. And I have Chris on the line. Chris, how are you? Good. I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. So this uh, group, the uh, Digital Human League, which, by the way, is pretty funny if you're ever into music in the 80s, but anyway, um, (laughs) that I'm involved with, that you're heading, uh, has just effectively gone public with a story in The Hollywood Reporter. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's great to be able to sit down and actually chat with you about it. Um, I guess the sort of question that I should start with for those that don't know and haven't seen The Hollywood Reporter is what is this uh, Digital Human League? Well, it's it's kind of, um, as most ideas, especially creative ones, it kind of came out of an evolution of things. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do, uh, we, a chaos group has started our office here in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, we opened our uh, the door back in January. And we sort of started this idea of creating uh, more of a labs environment where we're able to do a little bit of R&D in different areas. And one of the things we wanted to tackle was um, what we can do with uh, character work uh, in terms of our software and uh, or other things in general, just character work. Um, and uh, as we started to think about it more and more, uh, having having come from digital domain and knowing uh, how hard certain character, uh, well, some character work can be, I already knew that the digital humans is probably still the 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 hardest thing to tackle in terms of characters. Uh, there's so many things that become so challenging and such fine details that this seemed to me like that was, if we're going to do characters, why not just go for the Holy Grail at this point? Um, so I, we got together and we talked about a few ideas and uh, I decided that if, if we're going to talk about uh, digital humans, the best person for me to contact would be uh, Paul DeBevick. So because I've known Paul for years and we've used ICT scan data for, for uh, almost all the humans that we did at Digital Domain, um, it, he was the best, best person to talk to. So I told him a little bit about what we're trying to do. And as it so happens, he needed uh, a rendering done of a scan that he was doing for an article. And uh, we decided – this is a perfect opportunity for us to see what we can do with, with the data set. And it was sort of the, the very, very beginnings of this. Um, and we got involved with a few artists who, were, who we feel that had some very strong um, ideas and um, 
ways of approaching digital humans. And one of them is named as Dan Rorty. And Dan uh, started doing a rendering of, of Paul's scan data. And from there, uh, it kind of grew. Uh, the basic idea is, <clears throat> what I always feel is if you get, if you get scan data, uh, it's, it's basically scientifically acquired data. You measure someone's skin, there's photo, photography that goes in there that measures exactly the color space. I mean, this is data that's, that's, that's not sort of su subjective. But unfortunately, what happens when you get that data and you give it to an artist, a lot of times an artist will take that data and will try to manipulate it uh, based on some artistic interpretation of what that data wants to be, which is going to stray you from what how to actually use that data. So when I was talking to Paul about it, what we decided we wanted to try to make a way that we can take that data and sort of give people the blueprint of, if you have data like this, this is how you use that data and understand that scientific approach to using uh, the textures and the scan data correctly. On top of that, ICT is continuing to perfect their technique so there's more information that they want to test and try out uh, with with those types of data. And then I would love to be able to take that data and say, this is how you apply that data correctly. And artistically speaking, this is where the, the, the uh, artistic interpretation takes place. And that's the way that you would normally do things with lighting and camera work and other things of that nature. And not necessarily be an artist when it comes to shader building is another example. So really trying to remove the emotional part of the problem because um, – I mean, we'll get into the Uncanny Valley problem, but most of the problems that happen when, the uncanny, when people start to feel that they're in Uncanny Valley is they tend to overreact, emotionally speaking, and it, it tends to completely move you away from the, 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 where you need to be. So I figured if we, as much as we can figure out scientifically, the better. So that's why we got all these guys involved uh, in this process. So, so I'm involved as is uh, – actually, I've got my – so I'm – for those that don't know, I'm doing my PhD uh, at uh, Sydney University part-time. So I've got that hat on in my involvement yes. in this. Yep. But there are other researchers at other universities. But I'm going to – for today's purposes, I'll obviously wear my other hat, which is um, FX Guide, and discuss yep. uh, some of the issues. And that there are a lot to be discussed. So all we can really do is sort of set some groundwork. But yeah. right out of the gate, I want to say that's kind of the purpose of this discussion is to set some groundwork because by no means is this something you've done and finished – we're doing it now. No, no. This, yeah, we're not trying. And in fact, there is no. I don't think we'll have an answer either. We'll have the. We'll have a lot of questions that will beginning to provide answers. That I think, in general, I want the the entire community to be able to contribute to that discussion. Um, so I really see this as as something that is open to the community to contribute as well. So. With that in mind, let me just yeah. uh, start breaking it down a bit because there's an enormous amount of stuff here. I've got to say from my personal point of view, the thing that interests me about this the most is introducing the emotional aspect. I know you said removing the emotional aspect, but the emotional aspect, and by that I mean the way that it communicates emotion through faces is the mm -hmm. thing that I just find most compelling. And I, I often say to people, if I was to show you a picture of my wife and I pulled out a picture of anything but her face, you'd think I was a widow. Like literally, you just naturally assume that I say, I got a great picture of my wife, it would be her face. And not only that, you would say, nice photo, if she just happened to look happy, it could be photographically a disaster um, from an right. artistic uh, point of view. We're so yep. wired for faces in our brain. 
And we take that down a layer further, we actually have different neural pathways that are specifically uh, devoted, in my opinion, to, to processing different parts of human faces. So what you're tackling in this is not just a kind of an interesting project and, a, and a, you know, setting a high bar in terms of realism, but you're actually touching on sort of fundamental human brain functions. And so the reactions to this are vastly different than if you were trying to do a, a digital human laptop project, which, right. you know, we haven't developed a kind of special neurological processing for, for laptops, at least not yet. Right, uh, right, right. So I think, sorry, I was going to say, so, so just, but just to pick up on the, the point you've already made about uh, the work at ICT, mm-hmm. um, ICT, uh, I guess we should really start to de- sort of define the process because ICT is very much um, the sort of leading world experts in sampling of a real person mm-hmm. um, under a multitude of lighting setups so as to uh, feed information as to both the model and as to the nature of the skin and stuff. But that's just part of the problem in a sense, isn't it? Because, I mean, I might want to make somebody that I have either no actual person because they don't exist or they're no longer available to be placed in a light stage or to be part of a project like that. And that, yes. that is like a, like a, not a different problem because obviously there's retargeting involved, but there's sort of like the second dimension. It's like, can I reproduce this person? Which obviously since Digital Emily, um, ICT has been doing enormously great work in. Then there mm-hmm. is, can I produce the Benjamin Button? which is to say the old version, I can't put Benjamin as an old person, the actor uh, as an old person because he isn't old in a light stage. Uh, and that's before you can get into like an avatar or something where you want to go for um, a character that's sort of not even necessarily humanoid. Well, I, I 100% agree, but I also think that, you know, there is uh, what we're trying to do is actually just create a baseline benchmark in a sense. And I think if you start with ICT data, that's a pretty good baseline benchmark to start I, with. I think it's the best data going, yeah. Right. So you, you have, if, if basically I say, and I get, and I'll, we'll, in the end, what we're going to do is we're going to open source the data set. So we will give people the data we have, and here's all the maps that are needed to recreate that data and the shader that you would need to make that happen. So by giving people that information, if they want to recreate someone that, say, is not living, they would be able to say, in order for me to match that, I would have to create a model that's at least this detailed. I would have to create a diffuse map, a specular map, a you know, single scatter map, all of these different maps. They would understand what they are actually supposed to look like and how they're supposed to be, even down to the uh, you know, there's the the new 16K displacement maps that they're doing at ICT now, where you can get sub millimeter displacement or sub micron displacement. So very very accurate data, and they would understand exactly what the implications of using that type of data is, and if they need it or not. So it, like I said, it's a baseline for everyone to to think of. Yeah, but that's a really good example because um, obviously in game engines that doesn't tend to be used in any kind of direct sense. Mm-hmm. But for example, that to to you know pick on that uh, ICT, if you're listening to this and you're not so familiar with faces, you might say, okay, that just sounds ridiculous, right? Some kind of academic exercise. If you go into that level of detail on the face, no one's ever going to see it on the big screen. But in fact, the nature of the way the specular highlight looks on the skin is defined very much and actually very visibly different between those higher res scans and a lower res scan. And so, yes, it's true you don't see the pore, but the specular highlight, the way the specular highlight works is actually very visibly different. Uh, You can put up two pictures and you can clearly see uh, the one that had the higher res, not from its fine detail, but from its effect on... um, And that's exactly the kind of insight I think that, you know, it's like you want the textbook that kind of flags some of those things so you don't have to discover every one of those yourself. 
Absolutely. I mean, I speak to to Graham Fife, who's uh, uh, an IC is at ICT as well, and also one of the uh, a league member. And uh, his basic argument is, and a lot of people want to say, oh, you know what? In order to do faces, you need a you need a cook torrent shader. But if you have a high enough displacement map, there is absolutely no need for a cook torrent shader. In fact, the higher displacement map would be more accurate, and you'd be able to get all the fine specular highlights that a cook torrents tries to simulate. But you'd actually get it for real with that scan data. So that's the big difference, and that's something that I think people will will be able to learn from 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 the data that we're giving them. Now, the second issue is, um, and this was well. Let's before I even go to that, let's should define our terms a little bit the uncanny mm-hmm. valley so i think most mm-hmm. people kind of know it from a popular culture sense um the idea yep. of like a something being quite um uh, you, you kind of lack affinity with it to the point of revulsion if it's uh not there all the way and i, I the example i always use is tom hanks as um woody in toy story people love and embrace yep. tom hanks in uh uh, Polar Express is maybe less uh, embraced, and then of the real Tom Hanks is you know one of the most uh, beloved actors uh, in um, in Hollywood. Yes. So that dip that happens notionally, where we go from loving Woody but not liking him as the conductor on um, uh, Polar, Polar Express, Express. and yep. back—that's the uncanny valley. The other thing is this comes from an original 1970s paper on robotics, and even then. Mm-hmm. Um, in the original version, it was pointed out that when you move, when you have movement, it magnifies, it amplifies, if you like, that, that wave. And so you like it more if it's great and you hate it more if, you, if it uh, is not working for you. And so that would be my second point to you, which is if you get a scan, and already we've seen people produce very good single stills, how yes. much is the um, Digital Human League looking at not just producing a good still but producing uh, good motion? Well, we're definitely going to try to uh, tackle that as well. I think we're going to get there slowly, slowly. I have no, I'm not trying to create a, a a short here. We're not trying to do something. We're trying to test our data set. But there's let's 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 start with the idea of a still because I think there's actually several points to it. If you look at a good still and it looks very photoreal and it works for that still, that's all well and good, but. That may not also be the most accurate way of looking at things. Again, people may manipulate the shader in an incorrect way but still get it to work because it's still a still. So if we create a non-moving object, we still have to test it under different lighting conditions, make sure it works under different, uh, you know, different angles and all ideas that it works, even just as a non-animated piece. And then continue to carry that on as we go through animation. Animation is a massively complex uh, um, uh, Ta- uh, subject to tackle on, uh, with digital humans as well, um, which I'm extremely ready to do as well. This is exactly why we have someone like Steve Preek, who's on our uh, on our list of people that that is understanding this, and he's he's been dealing this with this since. Uh, uh, Final Fantasy. So we, I know the issues of animation that are extremely challenging and we, we have to figure out a way to deal with it. Um, one of the things that I want to do is just start with the lack of animation in a sense where uh, I want to animate someone that is standing completely still without motion and see if I can believe that person as being alive. And that I think is something that's interesting that I haven't really seen in a way. Yeah, I mean, there are enormous amounts of uh, complexity, as you say, in that process. I mean, a lot of studios now go down a fax pipeline, um, championed and, and uh, sort of pioneered into our world for, of uh, fax was brought over really by Mark Sager. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that is a whole, as you say, really, really interesting aspect. But you're right, like when you get into blend shapes and how faces are rigged and uh fluid simulations and a bunch of stuff um, on uh, flesh. Um, it's a very, very complicated area. 
Let me just back up to a point you made earlier about mm-hmm. the accuracy in the scanning. Um, and mm-hmm. be slightly argumentative just for the purposes of the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, my friend. But um, yeah. So one of the reasons that we get artistic stuff is that if I look at a face and I look mm-hmm. at uh, a scanning system, the things that it tends to not be good at is inside the mouth, tongue, that kind of stuff. Teeth tend to freak it out. Yep. Um, then hair doesn't tend to go very well, especially facial hair, so then eyebrows. And then, yep. of course, the actual eyeballs themselves don't tend to work very well. And so what you tend right. to get is not such good reading on the eyebrows, not such good reading of the actual eyeballs, not such good reading of inside the mouth or the teeth. Mm-hmm. And yet if I was talking to someone in the street and I said, what's the most important thing about a face? They'd say, oh, the eyes, uh, then the mouth, I guess the eyebrows, mm-hmm. and almost in that order. So mm-hmm. there is a there's a reason that there's there's an important artistic component right now. Oh, absolutely, and I'm certainly not denying it, which is why we have a lot of great artists on our uh, league member as well. Uh, and the reason we have them is specifically to tackle some of those very specific issues. Eyes, uh, like you said, are something you can't scan. When I when I uh, when I worked in uh, doing car commercials, we used to equate. Um, uh, car commercials, basically the, the headlights of a car were very much like an eyes on a character. And uh, when we were trying to do a uh, perfect car commercial to make it look as photoreal as possible, what we would always want to do, to, the sauce that we always wanted was a scanned car uh, for the body where we would get all the slight imperfections in the body work of the car, which we thought, thought was better and looked more realistic than CAD data for a body of a car. At the same time, we wanted CAD data for the headlights in order to get all the incredibly complex refraction and reflection that was going on in the car. So it was kind of a double thing. And the same thing exists for eyeballs. I think in order for us to do an accurate eye, we have to model extremely high detailed material based on just, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the anatomy of, of an eyeball in order for it to look more accurate. And that's something you can't get from a scan. Yeah, actually, interestingly, there is a paper coming out at SIDGRAPH uh, Asia that mm-hmm. uh, is about tracking eyeballs or doing eyes, and uh, we're certainly going to be following up on that. Um, I believe it's coming out of Disney Zurich, and uh, certainly we'll be talking to them and um, and following up on that as it's published. But it, it is, yeah, an, I mean, such a critical area. And there are companies that have put an enormous amount of work into uh, eyes. And it really does make such a difference, especially when you get down to the way that the eye is refracting and the caustics in the eye. And it's, uh, it's, an in, it's a super detailed area in of its own right. And that's before you even get to sort of eye moisture or eyelids and, and how they kind of work. It's, and, uh, and of course, rigging. And we've seen some yep. incredible working that, the work that's been done in eye rigging. And whenever you see someone testing an eye rig and it looks and it's really well done, it is just kind of mind-blowing. You almost forgive it for anything else. Um, uh, it, so I really just think that I, eyes are an incredibly part, important part, like you said. I mean, that's the souls of the character in a lot of way. So uh, let me ask you a couple of sort of broader questions. The, the work is obviously going to be relevant to uh, V-Ray, but it's not mm-hmm. a v-ray only initiative no this is um... no and absolutely not no we'd want to try to make it a community aspect i mean part of what i really want to do is as uh, to sort of uh, open it up to everyone to discuss this uh obviously we what we have as far as a shader is concerned in v-ray is something that's very um pretty much a standard uh shader that other renderers can, could could use as well uh so um it's not 
V-Ray is just a good platform for us to do, and it's just something that Vlado uh, specifically has had a lot of interest in. He wants to be able to try something on and some very complex stuff. So this gives him an opportunity to trust to test his software and test to see how how well things are working in that way. And I think it benefits everyone, and there's no reason why it can't benefit a very wide audience, including you know let's just even go to the medical community or whoever else wants to be involved. Um, so I think there's a lot of applications that could be uh, used for this, and it's not just for for animation. Um, in that way either. I mean, obviously, version three of, of V-Ray is out now, but even in, mm-hmm. in the earlier versions, some of, I mean, I've seen some spectacularly good stills of faces done in V-Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that, well, you also, the, you've also seen them in animation. I mean, Tupac, yeah. was, Tupac was done with V-Ray, uh, and so was uh, all the character of the Pixies that were done for um, uh, Maleficent were done with V-Ray as well. So the, it is possible to do it. The problem, I think one of the things that is interesting is I think Probably one of the reasons that this whole project came about was a discussion with Peter and I. Peter is the CEO of Chaos Group, and he was saying, I know there's always a stigma that people seem to think that V-Ray is only sort of used for cars and robots, and that's obviously not the case. And I think that's why he was motivated to do something that was character-driven. So this is, I think, probably the, the stimulus of this project in a way. Well, you brought up the Maleficent uh, fairies in particular. Mm-hmm. We did uh, something on that uh, with Wide Magazine. And so let's discuss that one because that's another one of these interesting aspects that uh, yep. needs to be explored. In the work that was done for the fairies, we were really interested to see the um, hemoglobin redistribution, uh, effectively the blood flow yes. map stuff done for that. Yes. Now, just so that people understand what's going on, if you were to strike a pose, the theory is that I could get my muscles to quickly go to those positions. In fact, sometimes very, very quickly. But, of course, the blood would take further, uh, t- a lot longer to redistribute itself because, of course, it has to flow through vessels and stuff. So there's kind of a, a fluid redistribution, uh, and that hemoglobin redistribution, of course, is going to affect um, uh, my reddishness of my face. Or um, in some cases, I don't even have to change my look to obviously become flushed or blushed. Um, and so all of that is very important for us reading human emotions. And so when mm-hmm. they were doing those fairies, there was up to a six-second delay between a fairy hitting a pose and the full redistribution and settling down of the blood flow that would then define the sort of effectively the colour as perceived by the subsurface scattering. Yeah. I've got to say there is also research that says that we can't read that um, and that it's sort of too, you know, in the face and it doesn't connect through. Now, I'm just curious as to your point of view. From my point of view, I can't believe that we aren't reading that, but I can believe that maybe we read it but are very hard pushed to articulate it because it's just so read, read at an emotional level as opposed to a kind of an articulate. I can't actually sort of say, hey, wow, she really opened up her irises and her blush response was three seconds. <laughs> it just doesn't right. work like that. I think I, I just don't see how we don't see it. I, it, I do agree that it's probably something subconscious, uh, but I just don't see how we how we don't see that uh, uh, in a, in a way. I mean, there was a, another story that that you and I had discussed about um, the, uh, the the paper at MIT, which basically looks at the. Uh, the very, very small differences that exist inside of your skin uh, and amplifies that difference. And it, by, by just having someone stand still, you can actually see the blood flow moving through someone's face, their actual pulse. Uh, and I have a feeling that we have perceived that in a way. So I, look f- I, I just think that that's something that we should, uh, we should be aware of. No, no, I totally agree. I mean, uh, that uh, MIT stuff, I think it's a phase-based uh, video motion processing. Yep. 
And uh, if you look it up online, or we can put a link to it, um, certainly uh, on the with the story, um, they took a face and they amplified the um, the hue change so that you could really see it. But the, another example of that was they amplified baby's breathing, um, mm-hmm. literally displacing the pixels more based on uh, whatever it was doing because the baby was otherwise lying flat. So you could really see the pace at which it's going. So huge interest in that in terms of uh, baby monitoring and stuff that's absolutely non-invasive. But yeah, I've got to say that stuff with the face and how much it amplified from, uh, and how much was really going on. You could and even the on. eye, and, and you said the the eye motion. They also do an amplification of the eye motion, and yep. you can see a huge amounts of very, very, very small motions. But I, I think we see them. Uh, there was another one of our league members, uh, uh, Stephen Parker, and you know, not not to to get a little bit morbid, but he had he happened to have been in in a war in the Iraq war, and he had seen someone that had died. Um, and even though there was no gore in that in the face, it was very clear that that person was dead, and he didn't know why that person looks dead as opposed to that person just standing still. But there is things that are happening in a face that's alive that are important and a lot of times if you look at if you ask people why did they feel that that is in the uncanny valley there's that it looks like a zombie it looks dead there's a lot of that that comes through in terms of their emotional response to it and i think that there's lacking some of those subtle things that we take for granted or are are, are um a sub, in, that we don't see in our subconscious yeah, I'll give you another one that I think is really fascinating. Um, in the original uh, body of work that uh, Paul Dickinson published around facts, and this is, of course, for those of you that are maybe uh, less familiar, this is completely before computer animation. In other words, this research about facts, um, the facial action uh, capturing system wasn't d- designed for computer animation. It was designed for um, being able to basically cap categorize facial expressions. But anyway, <clears throat> in that original book that he published, they had an interesting paper that was done whereby they took people and they said, are we going to, I'm paraphrasing now, but they, they said, we're going to basically surprise you at some point in the next half hour or so. And I think they may have fired a blank gun behind them, but they said, but mm-hmm. what we'd like you to do is just pose really surprised for us. And so a bunch of people did this. And of the group of people that they were testing, they brought in method actors. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting is, of course, they then later on fired a gun. And then they compared the facial expressions of everybody to their actual surprised expressions. And they found, not perhaps surprisingly, that the method actors were much closer at predicting their surprised response than normal people or, or non-actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I raise this is that a- another dimension of this that's kind of fascinating is that if you get someone to strike a pose, perhaps a good example would be a smile, and they only smile with their mouth, not around their eyes, which is a sort of a giveaway in the uh, lie-to-me sense of a realistic smile. A method actor would smile more with their eyes and their mouth. Well, if you digitally sampled that, perfectly mapped everything, got your subsurface nailed, totally delivered a picture, I might still say, oh, it looks like a kind of fake smile. When what I'm actually reading is the emotion wasn't genuine on the original capture. That's just Mm -hmm. how complicated this kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. uh, Yeah. And telling someone to have an emotion and capture it, you know, even no matter how fast the ICT data scanner is, it's kind of hard for them to actually act <laughs> and capture that perfect emotion. Uh, and I think that's the case in, in all in everything. And there again is where there's a balance between the artist uh, and the science data. And that's where I think the artist is involved, is in being able to give the emotion uh, to that character, to that digital character. 
uh, in a lot of ways, an animator or an artist or any modeler or any kind uh, is an actor or a digital actor trying to convey that emotion. And I think that's where that person's role is important. One of the things that ICT has been used for, and I'll use Benjamin Button as a good example, is they put a maquette in there to get the maquette of the, effectively the sculpture of what an aged version of, um, of the actor would look like. They did that mm-hmm. and they scanned that so they could have it under every lighting condition. And the, the reason, of course, is to get some kind of ground truth to compare to. So in a, in a sense, I feel like some of the work that you're wanting to lead the team in is trying to give us a ground truth, not to say what you should use in a production, not to say what you should use in a film, but just to say this is a really good reference point, the best that we can kind of get to right now. And then mm-hmm. you can base that as a ground truth upon which to compare variations of that, which may be artistically valid. I Yes, absolutely. I also think that this is, a data, this is data that a lot of people have been trying to tackle individually. And I think that it's about time that we started to tackle it as a community. Uh, and I think that we may not have the right answers, but we're gonna, certainly going to provide all of the right discussion points that need to be discussed. And it, like you said, give someone the ground basis to start that discussion more uh, in, a, in a group that allows them to, to build from there. This is this, – there is – Digital humans is not something easy, and we're certainly not trying to make it easier. Uh, no one's going to have a golden, um, you know, the gold key that's going to basically say, "Oh, okay, now we'll just make it a plugin or something like that." That's <laughs> certainly not what we can do. I know how hard it is to make a human. It's extremely, extremely hard, and we're just basically, if anything, we're going to reveal how hard it actually is and all the things that you need to consider. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is it would just be incredibly helpful to a bunch of researchers, let alone um, anyone else, to be able to say, okay, uh, here's here's a data model, here are some shaders, here is a working setup. This is giving you the leg up to then from here go somewhere else rather than having to kind of reinvent all that stuff uh, from first principles. And if it isn't working for some aspect, then you've got a really good baseline upon which to say, okay, here is our base. Let's look at a variation from that, which improves it for these reasons in these ways. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, that's exactly explain what I'm trying to do. So. So, so now let's say somebody is listening to this and they go, oh, this sounds terrific. This is exactly what I've been hoping for. Yeah. Um, the next thing they're going to say is, right, how do I get to find out more about this? When is, where is this going to be published? How do I actually get access to, to what the guys are talking about? Well, that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're, we're going to basically open a, a, a website and we're going to make it very much like a, like a Wikipedia type page or blog type page. And we're going to post a lot of our findings and we're going to have different people that are con- going to contribute to this discussion and open up for comments and other things. So we're definitely going to open it up to the community. So there's going to be a web page that's going to be up at some point. Um, we're still trying to gather information as to what we, we have on there for our first posting. Um, we're also, I also have a goal to have a first uh, open source set of data that we can give to people sometime in March, I think is when we'll be able to have something to do. But we're definitely looking for people who want to contribute to this in a different way, uh, uh, who can offer something that's, that they feel is going to be beneficial to the digital human, um, uh, uh, the WikiHuman project. So, as an example, we've got some ideas about what we want to do with hair, but we're still not exactly sure about how to deal with different hair. So we'd love to people who have research they've done for human hair or different types of hair um, to be involved. Um, 
animation is another portion, another part of things. Uh, procedural animation is another portion that I'd like to uh, understand and, and get people involved in that. So uh, they can definitely contribute. Uh, all they have to do is um, we have a, a website or a, sorry, an email that we can use for now, which is labs at chaosgroup.com. And uh, if they have ideas of wh- what they'd like to contribute and ideas they'd like to, to, to be involved with, uh, please let us know. And obviously, at FX Guide, we'll be posting whenever that comes online. So, yeah, um, you know, clearly. So, uh, if if when and when the website goes up, not if when the yeah. website goes up, uh, we'll fully cover that. Give you uh, guys links to it um, so that you know where it is, and also just even uh, you know on Twitter and stuff, make sure that uh, we alert you guys to the fact that it's there. Um, I just really can't commend you enough for doing this because I think it's a terrific thing, Chris. I just really super enthusiastic about it. Also, the, um, the group that you've already assembled is uh, incredibly uh, impressive, and and obviously there's a great spirit of sharing here which i always enjoy uh, you know seeing and being a part of yeah i i think that's an important part to me is that what's been great is that people have felt really empowered by the idea that they're sharing information with each other and they're doing it from lots of different studios and lots of different uh uh research facilities and i think that makes people feel like they're doing something for the greater good which is something that we don't always seem to feel like we're doing in our jobs. So I love that aspect of it. And it makes me feel really, really good. And I think this is a fun project. And the, the thing that I always think is funny is when I say I want to do something with digital humans, a lot of people's reactions are usually like, oh, no, no, I because the Uncanny Valley is such a strong emotional response negative response that even just tackling digital humans makes people feel uncomfortable. Uh, but I think that that's exactly why we want to do it is we want to see why is that happening and how can we overcome that? Yeah, I think that's actually one important point that we didn't cover earlier that should be clarified, which is the notion of the uncanny valley in the popular press is shorthand for I couldn't tell it wasn't real. And certainly in occasions of feature film, that's the benchmark, right? You obviously want to have a digital double or a digital character that looks 100% real, that doesn't take me out of the story. But in fact, the concept of the Uncanny Valley doesn't inherently say, uh, you only cross the valley when I can't tell it wasn't a real person. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are applications, clearly, where you could have something that looks completely uh, pleasant to the eye, that you find engaging, that you think is attractive, but you know it to be mentally a digital image, but you don't uh, have the uncanny valley response. There's, if, it may be a very, very small landing strip, but there is a tiny yeah. landing strip. And so in some of these applications and some of these discussions we're talking about, like, for example, medical, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be that you couldn't tell that it wasn't a real person's face that was being manipulated and that you think that somehow uh, there's some horrific uh, thing happening to someone's real face as the experiment is being uh, shown. It's just that it gets to a point where it's realistic and no longer, uh, to use the original term, uh, having a lack of affinity. And mm-hmm. so, but of course, for the feature film guys, that tends to get shorthand to can't tell it isn't uh, isn't digital, and you think it's a hundred percent real. But that is actually kind of a subtle difference there. There is, yeah, and I. I think these are things we, we'd love to test, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, you know people like you and, and Angela are an important part of that process to basically take our data and not only test it uh, in terms of what we can do in the CG side of things, but what we can do with it and analyze if what we've accomplished is something psychologically speaking or that, that actually makes sense, uh, that people are believing or not believing. And that's, that's, that's something I'd 
I think is fascinating to tackle as well. Yeah, I mean, there are actually quite a lot of quite serious, uh, I'm going to use the term, uh, well, I, I, I don't want to sound weird, but it's like the philosophical aspects almost um, about mm-hmm. what uh, we're talking about. There's certainly some uh, political issues and definitely some cultural issues, uh, not before we even get into issues of uh, who owns whose image and stuff. But I, I think the purpose of the Digital Human League is not so much to get into you know, issues of uh, who owns what copyright of what thing. That's probably outside the, the scope of it. But definitely yeah. I think there is room there for some dis- sensible discussions about some of the philosophical aspects of, uh, of the work and, uh, and the psychological impact of, of doing it. And I also think, don't you think that basically by testing things on a digital character, we may start to understand more about ourselves as real people as well. So I think that, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Look, uh, we mentioned Mark Sager before. I was uh, lucky enough to help run a conference here in Sydney and we invited Mark to come over and his work is outstanding. Uh, But his uh, adaption of uh, learning models and of neurological uh, pathways is exceptional Mm -hmm. research and definitely is enlightening to... um, to how uh, people think. And in fact, he had a, a face simulation where, uh, to give you an example from a medical point of view, um, they could look at uh, simulating uh, through correct uh, simulated neuro- neurological pathway um, uh, effects, the sort of things that you would see in a patient if they had Alzheimer's or if they had uh, Parkinson's or Huntington's and, mm. and uh, eye movements that are typical that would be used in a diagnostic sense to as an early alert for a, a medical practitioner to sort of say, I think that we should investigate this further because, you know, what I'm seeing here is kind of um, a, a symptom of that. And they would do that by inhibiting certain chemicals um, in the simulation. And, hmm. and that kind of stuff is, you know, very much uh, in sync with the kind of uh, benefits that come from this kind of broader research. It's, it's definitely got more than just, uh, you know, it's great having bums on seats at the movies and God knows I, you know, devoted my life to bums on seats in cinemas. I love that stuff. Right. But, but there's also some really honestly, uh, you know, very healthy things for humanity to be ex- explored here. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's, that's uh, I, don't, I think we're just going to start to uncover more and more as we go along. Yeah. Well, look, I can't thank you enough for doing this and for taking time to, uh, to chat with me uh, in my morning, your afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'll post stuff online. As I said, we've got, I uh, just want to repeat that email if someone wants to send something to you. Yes, it's labs at chaosgroup.com. And uh, yeah, please send us your ideas or what, you, what you'd like to see more happen in our group as well. I mean, any, any ideas would be great. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely be posting more as, as time goes along as well. So our website will be up. And then, like I said, in March, we're hoping to have the, our first set of uh, open source data to give out to the community. Yeah, and I'd certainly, if it's appropriate, love to do some more of these uh, podcasts discussing the issues and maybe drill down on a couple for more, for more depth because they are fascinating uh, areas. But thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much too. Well, that was very interesting. It's great to see such top people contributing to improving the industry as a whole. We'll be checking back in on this project in the future, you can be sure. So over the years, people have asked us how they can help FX Guy. They appreciate that we offered the site as a free service since 1999, and we don't bombard you with advertising all over the site. To answer that question, we started the FX Insider membership program that offers insiders exclusive content and expanded articles. It's a way for people who care about the work that we do here at FX Guide to help us to continue and grow. Details are at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. We also produce two other audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects and current releases, as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers digital cinematography. We also produce a high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. 
You can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. Also, check out our sister site, fxpht.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.